Welcome to Gateway Church Podcast. We're so glad you're here today. We pray God speaks to you through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, follow us on social media or visit our website, gatewayhome.com. Now, let's tune in to this week's message. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Matthew 13. Matthew 13, we've been in this uh, passage for the past two weeks, and we'll be there for most of the day today. You could also go to the Version app and click on events, and then click on Gateway Church Houston. Have, there should be a lot of notes today, so all the notes are right there, actually kind of outlined for you. Many people do that and then save it a little bit later. But we are on the second part of our series titled Profound. Uh, Jesus was one who taught in a simple way, but the words that he said were very profound. And one of the ways that he taught was actually through parables. A parable is a story rolled alongside a truth so that people can understand. And it was so that it would be revealed to those who were seeking, but it would be concealed from those who were indifferent to hearing the word of God. And last week, we talked about the parable of the sower. And today, we're going to talk about the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And my message title today is Divide and Conquer. Divide and conquer. We all have a desire for efficiency. Whenever you go to a restaurant, you make your order, you hope that it is efficient time before you get your food that it is nice and hot when it gets to the table. When it comes to many different things, we, we have a desire for efficiency, but also we have a desire for that in our personal life. Many of you know we have uh, four kids, and whenever we go to the store, Normally, we divide and conquer because we, okay, when I say we, I would like that process of going shopping very fast. And here's why. Uh, because I would consider myself a buyer, not a shopper. And there is a difference between the two if you don't know. For those that are buyers like myself, you know exactly what you're going in for whenever you go into a store. You get exactly that. And then you leave with the things that you have purchased. A shopper, on the other hand, is a little bit different. My wife, on the other hand, is a shopper. A shopper likes to go in. I'm not going to say you don't have a list because you do. But as you begin to browse, as you walk through the aisles, as you begin to peruse, you realize there were things at the store that should have been on the list that weren't on the list, and somehow your basket is full by the time you get back. And I will pray for all the shoppers' budgets in here, just so you know. But we have this difference, but uh, so she helps whenever we go. We easily divide and conquer, take the kids, split up, and, and make it fast. Well, we have, all have this desire for efficiency. But when it comes to the kingdom of God, God is going to do it in his timing, He's going to do it in his way because he's a God who loves and he knows the perfect timing for things. And that's really, in many ways, what this parable is about. And in Matthew 13, we're going to pick it up in verse 24. It says this. Here's another story Jesus told. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. But that night, as the worker slept, his enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat then slipped away. When the crop began to grow and produce grain, the weeds also grew. The farmer's workers went to him and said, sir, the field where you planted that good seed 
is full of weeds. Where did they come from? An enemy has done this, the farmer exclaimed. Should we pull out the weeds, they asked. No, he replied, you'll uproot the wheat if you do. Let both grow together until the harvest. Then I will tell the harvesters to sort out the weeds, tie them into bundles, and burn them, and to put the wheat in the barn. And that's the end of the parable. Everybody understand what that means? Well, the disciples did not understand, so they actually asked him. But I want you to catch something because it's very interesting. Jesus is speaking to a large crowd, but look at this next verse where he gives the explanation of verse 36. Then, leaving the crowds outside, Jesus went into the house. So the crowd heard the parable, but only the disciples got to hear what the parable meant because they had a relationship with him. And it says this, his disciples said, please explain to us the story of the weeds in the field. Jesus replied, the son of man is the farmer who plants the good seed. The field is the world, and the good seed represents the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people who belong to the evil one. The enemy who planted the weeds among the wheat is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world, and the harvesters are the angels. Just as the weeds are sorted out and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the world. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will remove from his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And the angels will throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their Father's kingdom. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. I have three points today, and the first one is this. The seeds were sown together. The seeds were sown together. In this second parable, he kind of uses the idea of a sower. He actually says that I am the one who sows the seed. But the good seed in this parable is different than the parable of the sower, and you need to make sure you differentiate. The good seed in the parable of the sower that we talked about last week is the word of God. The good seed that he plant, he's talking about planting this time is actually people who are in the kingdom of God. These are followers of Christ, and it's important to note the difference. Otherwise, this parable won't make as much sense. So it's not the word of God. It's the people who are of God. But the place where many people get confused is when it comes to where the seed is planted. See, the, the, the field is not the church. The field is the world. And it's important to understand this because... The kingdom of God is here, but it's not here in its full expression. And here's why, because the king isn't here. But one day in the future, the kingdom will be here in its fullness. A way to describe it is there's different personalities in the way that they arrive whenever there's a party. There's the person who's probably the extrovert. They show up really early to the party, probably earlier, and you haven't had the chance to clean everything. And you say you're glad they're there, but you're not necessarily happy they're there because they were too early. You have the people who love to be right on time, and they're typically right on time because they're going to leave before the party is over. But then you also have those people that are fashionably late. They're just late to everything, but sometimes they're the life of the party, so they make up for it. And, but you also have those introverts that show up pretty much when the party is over, and they're basically greeting you on your way out. For all the introverts in here, we know your tactics and we know your tricks, Okay. But then there's also a different type of party. And this is what I would describe the kingdom like. It's actually like a surprise party, except we don't know 
when Jesus is going to come back. We just know that he is coming back, and he actually tells us to watch, pray, be waiting for him, and occupy and do his business until he comes. But this is what the kingdom of God, it's arrived, it's at hand, but it's not here in all of its fullness, but the field is the world. Then he continues, it says, the enemy is Satan, the devil. And it's important to understand this because he talked about it last week and some of you may be at this place where I don't think the devil exists. Well, Jesus believes the devil exists. And it's important that otherwise you will be unaware of his schemes and his attacks against you. But the enemy opposes and tries to sabotage the good seed that was sown. But here, actually, as I read this parable, is the good news. And the good news is that he had to actually plant weeds. Because if he were able to just pull up the wheat, he would. But Satan does not have that much power to pull you out of God's hand. It's important for us to be able to understand this. Because his plan and his purpose is to try, since he can't pull up the wheat, is to corrupt and contaminate the environment that the wheat is meant to grow in. So this is his purpose and this is his intent that we need to be able to understand. And here's the main way that he does this, by offering counterfeits. He, he loves to imitate, but he's always coming against the seed. The first mention of seed in the scriptures is Genesis 3.15. And it says, this is between Adam and Eve and Satan. God's talking to them after Adam and Eve had sinned. He said, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed, lowercase s, and her seed, capital case s, that's the type of Jesus to come. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. See, in the same way that Jesus plants good seed, there's also people that are following the devil that are the, the weeds, the bad seed that was planted at the same time. Cain and Abel is another representation of this in 1 John 3, 12. John writes and says, don't be like Cain, who was of the wicked one. He was connected in that way, who killed his brother Abel. Jesus battled the Pharisees, and Jesus literally says to the Pharisees, you're of your father the devil. So you have to understand that there's this battle that is still being waged and going on. But Satan's method, or his chief method, is counterfeit or imitation, because he can't uproot us. And the point he tries to do is he tries to make it look the same on the outside, though the quality is different. I don't know if you've ever had anything fake. You bought your bag on the, on the streets in New York and you brought a fake Louis Vuitton. Not here to judge anyone. But if you get up close and you begin to touch it and you begin to feel it, the wear and the tear, the quality is not quite the same. But it looks the same. And this is what he tries to do. He has many counterfeits, and I want to label some of them today and really point out the scripture so that you're aware of his schemes and what he desires to plant. The first thing he does is he plants counterfeit believers. He plants counterfeit believers. Everyone that is among us isn't necessarily of us, but he intentionally does this. 2 Corinthians 11.26, Paul talks about all the different dangers, but I want to go in on the last part, and he says, and I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers, but are not. They were coming against the gospel that was being shared. The second thing he plants is a counterfeit gospel. He does this so that it leads people astray. He plants a counterfeit gospel. Galatians 1, 6-7 says this, I am shocked that you are turning away so soon from God, who called you to himself through the loving mercy of Christ. You are following a different way 
that pretends to be the good news, but it is not the good news of the gospel at all. You are being fooled by those who deliberately twist the truth concerning Christ. So they were presenting a false gospel that was faith and works. That's what they were saying. It's actually by your works that you are saved. It was an outside representation, not the truth of the gospel, that it's through grace, by grace, through faith. It's important for us to understand that. The next thing he plants is he plants a counterfeit righteousness. He plants a counterfeit righteousness. Romans 10, verse 2 says this. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is misdirected zeal. How many of you know you can be enthusiastically wrong? He's saying it's misdirected. For they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. This is the attitude of religion. That if I follow the law, if I follow morality, then I should be right with God. But God said, I sent my son, and he is the way, the truth, and the life. There are not multiple ways. There is one way, and that way to be made righteous is through relationship with Jesus. So we have to understand that this is what he wants to plant in our hearts and around us. Here's the next thing. He wants to plant a counterfeit church. A counterfeit church. Revelation 2.9 says, I know about your suffering and your poverty. This is Jesus speaking. But you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those opposing you. They say they are Jews, but they are not because their synagogue belongs to Satan. So he wants to plant a counterfeit church. Here's the next thing. He also offers a counterfeit Christ. That's ultimately what his biggest desire is. 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, where it talks about the man of lawlessness. It says, he will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God in every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God, claiming that he himself is God. So he desires to plant these false things into the false Christ. By the way, if you look through this uh, and you finish the rest of the passage, I don't have the time to go into it. This is how the man of lawlessness is defeated by God. It says he's defeated by the breath of God. See, many times we think God and Satan are on even playing fields, and that couldn't be further from the truth. Satan is actually created being. God is the one who's almighty. He's all-powerful. He's self-sufficient, and he can defeat Satan. And he's given you the power to do so in your life as well. So you have to be able to understand this. He wants to offer you counterfeits. Whenever uh, I, I was younger, I was working at a bank. And it was a season in my life I felt like God was calling me to ministry, but I, I needed to be faithful where I was. And during that time, now they have kind of machines that do a lot of the work. But they would teach us to be able to spot counterfeits. But the way that they taught us was not by bringing us a bunch of counterfeits. They actually let us handle and touch the real stuff so that whenever the fake or the counterfeit would show up, we would easily be able to spot it and we would be able to turn away from it or turn it back or throw it in the trash where it belongs. See, here's what you need to understand. A fake gospel won't give you righteousness. We need the gospel, the true gospel of what Jesus Christ did for us, for us to believe in him so that we can be made righteous and perfect in our position and relationship with him. It's not of our own works, but it's believing in the work that Jesus did. So the seeds are sown together. That's point one. Here's the second one. The seeds are grown together. 
The seeds are grown together. There are only two categories in this parable. And I love, once again, it's profound truth that he's giving, but he makes it very simple. And the choices are you're either wheat or you're a weed. I know that's not very calming, but I want to say there is no neutral position. You can't toe the line in this. He only gave you two categories. There's no middle, middle ground here. Whenever I was in college, some friends came from out of town to visit us. And they parked in a parking lot uh, that wasn't for visitors. And then they came upstairs and we found out they, where they had parked. And I said, hey, you don't want to be down there. Security loves to get out a lot of tickets. I've had a lot of tickets in my life, never paid them. But this is my confession moment right now. But, <laughs> but I was like, hey, you know what? You travel a long way to get here. I'll move your car for you. I'll put it in the right spot. And then I'll let you know. I'll bring back the keys. So I went down there and I went, opened the door and got in the car. And I immediately noticed a problem. He had a manual transmission, and I only knew how to drive automatic. But I'm in college, right? I'm smart enough. I can figure this out. I've watched Fast and Furious, the movie, enough times to be able to figure this out, okay? But I attempted several different times and found myself in neutral a lot as I tried to get his car. And I finally went back up to the dorm room, and he was like, dude, what took you so long? And I said, hey, man, you probably need to take your car to the shop. It's stalling out a lot. You should get that fixed. <laughs> but my point is and all that, you can't be neutral. There's no neutrality in this. You're, you're either one or you're the other. But see, in this parable, Jesus acknowledges the enemy added weeds. And by the way, he, he works in darkness. It was while they were asleep. That's the place the enemy loves to work. But a natural question that the workers had is, should we pull the weeds? It's, it's a very natural question. And Jesus ultimately says no. But I want to talk about this for a second. Because I feel like sometimes we have some spiritual weed pullers, as I'm going to call them. They're people who like to call people out. Another way to say it is they are critical Christians which is an oxymoron, just so you know. Last time I checked, I did not find criticism to be a fruit of the Spirit. Just throwing that out there. I found love, found joy, I found peace, I found kindness, I found patience, but I didn't find criticism. So we're supposed to call people up to be who God has called for them to be. And yes, I understand we're supposed to speak the truth in love. I really do. That's not what I'm saying. And we should think critically, but we should not be critical Christians. See, many times people, they, they're fighting against the wrong thing. It's, the scriptures say we do not fight against flesh and blood. That's not the battle we're supposed to face. But many times we can kind of uh, close our critical thinking or critical way of calling people out in the spiritual way of, you know, I'm just using discernment, brother. That's the way that we can kind of cover it up and say, hey, this, I have the gift of discernment, the discerning, the gift of discernment. Here's actually what it says. It says, gift of discerning of spirits. That's what it is. See, so many times we're dealing with things and a type of person over and over again because we only know how to remove people and we don't actually know how to remove the spirit that continues to come against our lives. This is the discernment that you need to have. And it's important that we catch this. It's important that we understand this because many people unknowingly have committed what I like to call wheat on wheat violence. <laughs> but here's the truth. They're doing Satan's work. 
They're dividing and conquering. See, it's hard to run your race when you're so preoccupied on everyone else's. God has a race for you to run. And the best way to run that race is to get the plank out of our own eye first and to love people rather than attack each other. Romans 14, one through four says this, accept other believers who are weak in faith. So here's what he's saying. There are other believers who are gonna have weaker faith than you. Says so right there. And don't argue with them about what they think is right or wrong. See, on the essentials, on who Jesus is, that's what we believe in. But there's other things that are right, that we may believe are right and wrong that aren't necessarily the essentials or sin. For instance, one person believes it's all right to eat anything. I probably fall in that category, except mushrooms and peanut butter. Those can go by the wayside, okay? But another believer with a sensitive conscience will only eat vegetables. And if that's you, more power to you, just so you know. I actually love cows too. Uh, medium rare, when they're cooked like that, is great. They're delicious. It's wonderful. But, okay, don't email me. I was just joking. Okay, great. <laughs> but those who feel free to eat anything, here's really the key. And I believe it's actually talking about more than just food. Must not look down on those who don't. And those who don't eat certain foods must not condemn those who do, for God has accepted them. It's important to understand this. Verse 4, who are you to condemn someone else's servants? Their own master will judge whether they stand or, or fall. And with the Lord's help, not your help, they will stand and receive his approval, not your approval. See, we're called to love each other. Ultimately, God will be the judge. So Jesus, in a sense, is saying, hey, thanks. But no thanks, it's not your responsibility to do that because you'll actually end up uprooting not just weeds, but also wheat. Psalm 133, one through three says this. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head that represents the Holy Spirit running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing life forevermore. See, where there is unity, God commands the blessing. And here's why. Because it's rare. And it takes humility. Where there's true unity, it actually is a reflection of him on this earth. So what God is saying, I want more of that, so I'll bless it. I'll put my hand on it. I will propel and move it forward because it's a reflection of who I am on this earth. And he knows what gets rewarded gets repeated. He wants us to walk in unity with each other and not go to a rush judgment of people because ultimately he is the judge. I don't know if you've ever been in that place where you've gotten frustrated uh, or upset when it looks like the wicked are prospering. You've, another way to say it is you've envied weeds. You've envied what seems like they're, they're doing well. And, and I'm a follower of Christ and I seem to be struggling. And if we're not careful, we can be like the children of Israel who desired to go back into bondage in Egypt. 
Because we begin to be deceived thinking it is better to be in bondage to sin than to be in freedom with the Savior. And it's a, a lie that the enemy has, but Psalm 73, 3 actually talks about this. Here's what it says, for I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. Verse 12, look at these wicked people enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? I don't know if you've ever asked that question before. Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? See, if you continue reading the passage, he finally gains eternal perspective. He had a temporary perspective in this moment. But here's what it says in verse 21. See, then I realized that my heart was bitter and I was all torn up inside. See, many times when people are kind of coming at or they're attacking people, here's what they like to say. They're like, Ethan, I just tell it like it is. And I say, okay, but I personally don't believe we tell it like it is. We actually tell it like we are. We tell it in the way that we see. We tell it through our filter and we actually tell it through our perspective. We don't just tell it like it is. Ultimately, the one who knows the truth, the one who knows people's hearts is God. Man looks at the outside. God is the one who looks at the heart. But here's where it says to put us all in a category. And it's important that we understand this. Ephesians 2 verse 2 through 3 says this. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live this way. All of us. By the way, this word all in the Greek means all. Just so you know, I wanted to throw that out there. <laughs> all of us used to be this way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But see, here's what we need to understand. God is patience with us, patient with us, so we should be patient with others. God is gracious toward us. We should in turn be gracious toward other people. God is loving towards us. We should in turn be loving towards other people. As a matter of fact, Jesus said it in John 13, 35. He says, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. It's not your theology, even though knowing theology is good. It's not all these other things, not how you correct people, not all those things. It's shown by the way that we have love for each other. That is proof. Whenever, if you've ever been to Costco, you've been shopping, whenever you go to leave after purchasing everything and probably spending way too much money thinking you were saving money, uh, whenever you go out, they want to see your receipt because the receipt is proof of all that you purchase. And they'll look through the whole entire car and then you're free to go. Whenever it comes to if you are a disciple and a follower of Christ, the receipt or proof that you are a follower is actually in the way that you love each other. And it says the world will notice it and their lives can be changed. So we have a responsibility in all of this. But the seeds are grown together. And here's the third one. The seeds are known together. The seeds are known together. See, weeds at this time that they that probably would have been planting, they would have understood what Jesus was talking about. They actually look very similar to weed. They're indistinguishable at the very beginning. And weeds grow fast, but in the end, they're actually unfruitful. See, my concern 
many times, and my prayer for all of us as a pastor is that some of us are so gifted that it appears that we're fruitful. But those are two different things. Some of us can lead, we can organize, we can serve, we can sometimes even minister out of our gifting rather than ultimately seeing good fruit. It's important for us to be able to understand as Jesus says this in Matthew 7. It's a very sobering passage. Verse 21, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. By the way, it does not say I knew you at one time and now I don't know you. It said I never did. There was never this intimate relationship that, we, that I had with you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. See, at the end of this parable, it begins to share some things concerning the end. It says there will be a harvest. And the angels, their role is to remove evil from the kingdom of God. But that, gives it, that should give us encouragement because we need to know that God will make it right in the end. God will sort it out. If we don't do it, God is, has it all under control, even though we think we need to have it under our control. And in the end, all the injustice, all the pain, all the hurt, will be made right because God is a just God. But the angels have a part in all of this. And there will be a separation of the wheat and the weeds, but the weeds are actually all gathered together and thrown into a fiery furnace, which denotes hell. See, many times people will fight about hell. They're like, why would a good God send people to hell? And I want to answer that in a question, but I actually will tell you first, what does God want? And it actually tells us in 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He's being patient for the person that you're praying for. He's being patient for the child that you've been praying for, potentially for 30 plus years, who is lost. He's being patient and he's pursuing them. He's being patient for people that are here in this room today. And here's why. He says, he, that's God, does not want anyone to be destroyed. He wants everyone to repent, to change their mind is what repent means, to go his way, to follow after him. This is what God wants. This is what God's will is. So a loving God doesn't send people to hell. We choose it. We choose it by our unbelief. He's done everything that's necessary by sending his son to die on the cross for our sin and was raised three days later and it's by confessing and believing in him that we're saved. You don't have to go this route where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping denotes emotional turmoil. Gnashing of teeth has to do with the physical side of it. But hell is real and Jesus is the one who states that it is in many different passages. And I'd rather talk about it than see you go there so that you can come into a saving relationship with Jesus. But here's also what you need to know about hell. Hell was not prepared for humanity. It was actually prepared for the devil and his demons. Here's what it says in Matthew 25, 41. Then the king will turn to those on the left and say, away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. That's who hell was originally prepared for. But in our humanity's rebellion, 
It actually says in Isaiah, and I don't have the time to go into this, but it actually says hell enlarged itself. But here's what we need to understand. It wasn't prepared for us. God actually prepared a way that we can get out, that we can experience life through Jesus. But it all comes down to who has control of your life. Is it Satan? Is it you? Or is it God? 1 John 5.19 says this. We know that we are children of God and that the world around us is under the control of the evil one. So who is in control of your life? This past week, as I mentioned at the beginning, I was in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. I was staying with my father-in-law. And after the conference, the first night, we had the chance to kind of just talk. We were catching up. And I was preparing to speak this weekend, and he's one of, he is the best preacher I know. So I figured I'd get his feedback and uh, what he would say. And I just asked him about this parable, if he had anything. And I should have known that we were in for a longer conversation because he grabbed this seat. And so I sat down right alongside him. And I just pulled out my phone and I began to take some notes. And he really began to share his story and his testimony. And he's, he said, I could share it today. Uh, he grew up in church. Um, his, his parents were believers. So he grew up in church. He experienced that. And then whenever he was older, he met Debbie, who's his wife. And they were married, but he still wasn't saved. And he, he found this out a little bit later, but marrying Debbie, actually, he began to see what it looked like to have a true relationship with the Lord, to actually know God, because he had experienced church, he'd experienced going. And even at that time, he was traveling and preaching. He was actually ministering, and that's why I said he was very gifted with communication, so he would go to the different schools and prepare people to come to one of the revival nights and that he would even preach it. But as he began sharing with me, continued sharing with me, he said, this is actually the passage that I preached on the night before I got saved. He said, I preached and it was a powerful night. Many people actually came to the Lord. And the reason why they come to the Lord is because the word is what's powerful. That's what changes lives, not a person. Just so we all know. But he's like, I preached. I got back in the car. Me and Debbie are driving back home, and he said to Debbie, if I believe everything that I just preached tonight about the parable of the wheat and the weeds, then I'm not saved. And Debbie, very kindly, if you know her, said, well, then you're not saved. But he was serving. He was ministering. He was just a preacher that night. But here's what he really described in that, and it hit him that he was a part of that. He said, the wheat and the weeds look the same, but when you go to open up the shaft, the shaft of the weed is empty on the inside. And he knew that he was empty on the inside, but he saw Debbie had a thriving relationship with God. So the next day, he actually went to a motel room in room 12 of Jake's motel and gave control of his life to God. And he was saved, and that was a radical change that many of us hear about today, and we've been blessed by his ministry, but it was a decision that he knew he needed to make. And I believe that today, there are some people here, you may have even ministered, you may have even served, you may have even grown up in church, but you know that you're empty on the inside. And you know you need God to fill you, but you have yet to give him full control and surrender control of your life. And you're empty. Maybe you've even been at that place where you rededicated many times, but there really hasn't been the laying down of control. And today, 
It's time to lay down control of your life to receive the life that God desires to give you so you don't have to be empty anymore, but you can be filled with his spirit and his strength. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes with me. We ask this question every single week. What is the Holy Spirit saying to me through this message? In a moment here, we're going to go into one more worship song. And there'll be a prayer team down front that wants to pray for anybody who needs prayer. But before we get to that place, I want to say we all need a chance to respond. Some of you today, you're in that place where my father-in-law was. You're serving, you've, you've ministered, yet you still feel empty on the inside. You haven't laid down control of your life to God. And today, the Holy Spirit's been speaking, speaking to you and saying you need to go all in. You need to lay your life down and surrender control. In a moment here, I'm going to pray for us. We know it's not the prayer that saves us, but it's the believing in our heart and the confessing with our mouth. That's ultimately what saves us. But if you're here today and you say, I need to give God full control of my life. As you pray today, Ethan, would you count me in? Would you just raise your hand right now? Just raise it high. We should never be embarrassed. This is the best decision that we could ever make. Raise your hand high. Believe that God is going to move. He's going to fill us. If you have that place today and you would say, hey, I'm empty on the inside, but I know that God has more for me. Okay, you can put your hand down. And as I pray, I just want you to pray this prayer in your heart. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and your love. We thank you that you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins, to live a life that we could not live, to die a death that we deserved, that he was raised from the dead three days later and by us believing in his sacrifice that we receive forgiveness of our sins. So today, as an act of our will, we choose to lay down control of our lives and to give you control. We surrender who we are to you, that we would be people who are fruitful, that we would be people who experience your life, that we would be people who are filled and empowered by your spirit. And we choose to follow you from this moment forward. Thank you for new life. You have all of us today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. And everyone said, amen and amen. Thanks for joining us today. If you live in the Houston area or are in town for a visit, we would like to invite you to join us for a service. For service times and location, or more information about Gateway Church, follow us on social media or visit our website, gatewayhome.com. Have a blessed week.